there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And that just bolted out of the text. Jesus is coming to be marveled at. Well, you're not going to marvel at him if you don't love his appearing. You're not going to be ready. Your, your whole emotional disposition will not be one of marveling. It would be terror. Nobody's in heaven because they're scared of hell. They're in heaven because they love Jesus. At my best moments, that love for me is so sweet and so exquisite in its personal power that I would like to say thank you face to face and get down low and just soak in the immediacy of his love for me. Welcome to The Afterword, a conversation about books, reading, and the church. This is a podcast by Westminster Bookstore, and I'm your host, Johnny Gibson. And I have the privilege today of having Dr. John Piper uh, on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Piper is the lead teacher at Desiring God and also the chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. Uh, he was the pastor for 33 years of Bethlehem Baptist Church and is the author of over 50 books. Uh, Dr. Piper, it's a privilege to have you on the podcast this morning, and thank you for coming to chat about this new book, Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, I mentioned that you've uh, written over 50 books. Um, is there one of those 50 that you find the hardest to write? Um. Well, some of them were written so long ago, I've forgotten how difficult they were. So I'll go with the ones that were written in the last few years. And I suppose I'd have to say Providence was the most difficult because um, being as long as it is, 750 pages, and as comprehensive as it is, um, I had to assemble hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of texts and thoughts and when you when you do that you i mean for example i i took a blue copy of the nasb about 10 years ago and i read it through several times all the way beginning to end as my bible reading and i took a, a yellow highlighter and a blue highlighter the blue was anything that looks like god is sovereign and in charge in any way and and the yellow was looked like problem texts for him being in charge. Well, it ended up a very blue Bible. And when I was done with that, I handed it off to the guys at Desiring God, and I said, would you turn this into a Word document that is cut and paste, however you want to do it, so that all those blue texts, all those yellow texts are on searchable uh, Word document. That's basically what I started with. Well, it was a very long document. I mean— I don't know, 60 or 100 single-spaced pages, 12-point type. And and you stare at that and you say, what am I going to do with this? How in the world do I turn this into a book? So that that point in the writing, I mean, writing is not hard for me. Conceptualizing is hard, really hard. And so that was kind of a start and stop. It took two about two years to, to get that all together, but 
probably Providence would be the most difficult for that reason. And you you say writing's not hard for you. It's the conceptualizing of a topic or an idea or the flow of the argument. Has there been a book of the books you've written that felt like it flowed more easily than the others? Maybe because of the subject matter, maybe because of your interest in the matter? Well, you know, most of my books, I think this is fair to say, not all of them, but most of my books have have been sermons to start out. I've, I have not written many books from scratch as a book. Providence was written from scratch as a book, although I'd thought about it in hundreds of ways for a long, long time. But Desiring God, for example, that was my first, what you'd say, uh, popular level book. Before that was Doctoral Dissertation and Justification of God, which are very technical. But Desiring God was a sermon, and those flowed. They really did. I'm, I mean, I, I love the truth of Christian hedonism, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And therefore, to find it worked out in about eight or nine, or I think there are, what, nine chapters in that book? I can't remember. Um, was was a, a sheer delight. So at the level of preparing the sermons and then converting the sermons uh, by tripling their length, I suppose, into a book, did not feel as agonizing as as the Providence book. So I, I suppose I would point to that one. And um, you mentioned Desiring God. I suppose if I think of you and your book writing, I think that's the book that sort of defines John Piper's passion, what he's been about in his ministry. Uh, would you agree that that's the book? If If there was one John Piper book that people wanted to read to get to know what John Piper's passion and ministry has been about, would that be it? Or, or would it be another one that you've written? Yeah, yeah I think so. Although, um, when I wrote The Pleasures of God a few years later, I said, this book is really foundational to Desiring God. It should have come first, because the God, the kind of God there is behind our desiring him is more important and more fundamental than our desiring him. And and desiring God is really very much about our desiring God and how it glorifies God. But unless you unless you have a sense of the majesty of God, the bigness of God, the sovereignty of God, most of what I write is not going to make sense. And uh, I think the pleasures of God probably got at that. And even before that, the justification of God, where I wrestle with the meaning of Romans 9, was for me an absolutely essential breakthrough. Because as a young 28, 29, 30-year-old college teacher, I I had not yet figured out how to read Romans 9. And I took a long time and and wrote that book to settle for myself who is the god of romans 9 is he can you worship the god of romans 9 can you put your hand over your mouth and bow before the sovereignty of the god of romans 9 and so working my way back from desiring god to pleasure yeah. of god's justification of god you can see how, how the stones got built well it's interesting you say that because the first book of yours that i read was uh, the sovereignty of god in preaching saw it on a pastor's desk in South Africa when I was in my gap year in 1996. Huh. And that really captured me. The next book I read was Desiring God, which I really enjoyed. But the book I enjoyed the most was the next one, which was The Pleasures of God. A bit like what you've just said, in a sense, it sort of deserved <laughs> to come first because of who God is. 
And then the one that really just solidified everything for me was your book, um, God's Passion for His Glory. I got it as a Christmas present. First half is Jonathan Edwards, The End for Which God Created the World. Second half was your interaction with that. And uh, you, you talked about using highlighters. I had an orange highlighter. And I went through and I, I literally was just highlighting every page of Edwards. Like, I, you know, I think, let me highlight things that are interesting. I would just be highlighting whole paragraphs. And uh, you, you just presented to me a, a paradigm of God's desire for his own glory and for the good of his people. And the good of his people is his own glory. And so they're not two different ends. They're one end. This is Edwards. And then you unpack that as well. So. That's a bit of uh, autobiographical interaction with your books. So it's interesting that yeah. you've got the same idea that actually the pleasures of God is sort of the foundational one. And that's what I say to people. If you want to read Piper, don't start with Desiring God. Start with the pleasures of God, and then you'll get mm-hmm. what he's about mm-hmm. when it comes to desiring God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that kind of depends on the kind of person you're talking to. Pleasures of God is, is heavy sledding mm-hmm. for most people. In fact, I was I was surprised how many people said to me, well, I sort of enjoyed desiring God, but it was hard. And I thought, really? <laughs> I mean, there, there's just a lot of non-readers in the yes. world. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. we've got to be careful how, how we recommend things. Yes, yeah. Uh, which brings me to this book, Come, Lord Jesus, Meditations on the Second Coming of Christ. Uh, you dedicate the book to George E. Ladd. Uh, perhaps for many listeners, they're unfamiliar with who he is. Can you tell us who he was and uh, what your relationship to him was? And then I want to ask you about the comment you make in the dedication. But tell us who he was and how you knew him. Uh, George Ladd was a pastor in New England until he was called to be one of the founding professors of Fuller Seminary uh, back in the late 40s. Um, and was a New Testament professor, got his doctorate from Harvard, and was part of what you would call the um, resurgence of the new evangelicalism, it was called in those days, which was basically an effort of um, people who had come like I did out of a fundamentalistic background who wanted very much to hold on to the fundamentals and yet uh, read and understand and engage with the best scholarship available in any field. And so he represented that in the New Testament. He he was, I would say, you know, just a personal touch, like many of those men in the early days, um, not entirely healthy uh, m- mentally, I think. He lived under such enormous stress to try to make a name for the gospel that it 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 got a little off balance it seemed but i loved him i mean i sat in his classes for i forget how many classes i took with him basically new testament theology when he was writing his book on new testament theology he had already written uh, the kingdom of god which is now called the presence of the future in which he he laid out his basic premise that all of the new testament is eschatological which which meant Texts like uh, we are now in these last days, Hebrews uh, 1, 1 to 3. In these last days, God has spoken to us by a son. Well, what what is that? <laughs> these last days, 2,000 years ago. Um, and, and he showed that 
uh, the Old Testament hope was that Messiah would come, Messiah would bring in the, the new age, the kingdom of God, and the surprise, the mystery of the kingdom was that you get fulfillment without consummation. That was his phrase. The mystery of the kingdom was fulfillment in Jesus. The kingdom did come, and the end times did arrive. The eschaton did arrive, and yet here we are 2,000 years later awaiting the completion of the last days. So that that was new to me, frankly. I'd never heard anybody talk like that, that every sentence in the New Testament is written with the self-consciousness that we're in the last days because Messiah has come. And so he has that, you know, that diagram where the the, the overlapping uh, this age and the age to come, they overlap in this part right here is where we live. And it, got, it began with Christ coming and it ends with Christ's second coming. And we live in this tension, the already not yet. And as you read the epistles, you see the amazing way that Paul handles ethics by saying who we already are. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, live out your new life because you're already in heaven. Yeah, These amazing statements yeah. that, that are understood against the background of, of the presence of the eschaton. Mm. It reminds me of uh, Gohardus Voss, the Pauline eschatology, where he says that if you want to understand Anything about Paul's theology, you have to understand is eschatology, that it's basically the center of Paul's theology, that he maps out his homartiology, his soteriology onto the canvas mm -hmm. of eschatology. Mm -hmm. And you made a comment there mm -hmm. that if you read the New Testament, it's just always there in the background. It's always the, the environment in which the apostles are writing and thinking between the now and the not yet. Um, I'll come back to your comment about ethics uh, I like to use the phrase ethics by eschatology, living mm -hmm. living now in light of then. But we'll come back to that because that's your third section in this book, uh, Come Lord Jesus. But I want to begin with your first section and the early chapters where you speak about the importance of loving Christ's appearing. Uh, why do you think that is important that Christians love the second coming of the Lord Jesus? The text that took hold of me that really brought this book into being was Second Timothy four seven and eight. I have I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. I have I have fought the good fight. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will give to me, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. And that just bolted out of the text. I. I think it means if you don't love the Lord's appearing, you don't get the crown of righteousness. And and I think the crown of righteousness is salvation. I don't think it's an extra. And and the reason I think that's confirmed in Paul is because at the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, let those who do not love the Lord be accursed. Loving the Lord is an essential part of being saved. And if you love the Lord, the person, you love him in a way that you cherish him, treasure him, desire him, want to be near him, with him, know him, you'll want his appearing. I think that's the logic in Paul's mind, and therefore it's important because we won't have him if we don't love his appearing. 
Yeah, it's the sine qua non of the gospel. It's one aspect of the gospel that's essential to it, that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed says. And this is what Christians have always believed. I, I just thought it was lovely how you began the book with that. And when I saw that that was the verse you honed in on, I thought, well, of course, Dr. Piper, John Piper has honed in on this verse because of the word love, affection, you know, with your, your uh, perspective on uh, Christian hedonism. I thought, right. uh, you know, I can see why Piper has gone there and, and gone to yeah. town on this. And it, it is such a striking verse, as you say, because Paul is basically saying that if you want this crown of righteousness, if you want to be saved, you have to love the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Right, right. The, the, uh, probably the text that had prepared me to feel the force of that was in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, where it says he's coming on that day, he's coming in flaming fire, bringing vengeance on those who have disobeyed the gospel, and to be glorified in all his saints and marveled at by those who have uh, believed the gospel. And I just asked him, marveled. So what's marveling? Jesus is coming to be marveled at. Well, you're not going to marvel at him if you don't love his appearing. You're not going to be ready. Your, your whole emotional disposition will not be one of marveling. It would be terror. Like, this is terrible. I mean, the, the, splat, the, the, the sky splits, light, lightning from east to west, millions of angels, trumpet sound, command of God. This is not going to be a small thing. And who will have the the emotional, affectional, spiritual wherewithal to lovingly marvel at the Lord rather than be terror-stricken and hide themselves under a rock? Mm -hmm. So that text of he's coming to be marveled at was already simmering for years in my mind when, mm. when it hit me. You need to love his appearing. Mm. Yeah, I, th I thought the way you brought those two things together, the being glorified, loving his appearing and being marveled at is really lovely in the early chapters. Um, as I was reading it, I was convicted about how much I love the Lord's appearing, how much I long for it, how much I'm looking forward to marveling at it. And it got me thinking, do you think that the church in the contemporary church today, <clears throat> there has been a weaning of that love? Uh, I, I was thinking, how often do we hear about the second coming of Christ in our church services, uh, in the preaching that we listen to? I'll come on to the topic of hell in a moment. But do you think that the church has lost its sight of that second coming with materialism, with secularism, with the different challenges in our current cultural milieu? Yeah. Do you think the church today, Christians today, are, have weaned in that love? Well, we're certainly not in any danger, I would say, in the wider evangelical church of overemphasizing the second coming. There may be pockets of prophecy buffs who are excessively preoccupied with the details of the end times. I, I don't think that's very widespread. Um, I think for the vast majority of younger people today, and maybe even older people, they, they don't give very much thought at all 
to the Lord's coming. And so, yes, I, I think it's a neglected uh, emphasis, um, and we would do very well to uh, put our heart's affections on it afresh, and and pastors would do well, I think, to in a in a, in a biblically balanced way. And Paul, Paul and Jesus are very jealous not not that that it not be imbalanced. Mm-hmm. I mean, they know the dangers, right? Mm-hmm. They 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 both are eager for us not to be alarmed, mm-hmm. not to be hysterical. I mean, Paul dealt mm-hmm. with hysteria, mm-hmm. right? And they're both very eager that we not be neglectful, that we not be drunk asleep when he comes. We're children of the light. It's not going to take us off guard. It won't, it won't be a thief in the night to us. We'll be awake and alert and happy to see the, the signs and coming. So the, the Bible itself protects us from a misuse of the Bible. And pastors, if they could just see that, they, they wouldn't have to be afraid. I don't think that, oh, I'm going to turn my church into some a strange kind of sectarian preoccupation with the second coming. Hmm. Uh, for such a positive book, looking at the second coming of Christ and our loving his appearing and marveling at it, you have two chapters on hell. Um, why did you put those in? If if we're looking for Christ's second coming, do we really need to focus on something so negative? And do you think, again, back to my question about the contemporary church, do you think we've lost our sense that there really is a hell coming for those who reject Christ, who are dead in their sins. Um, yeah. Why did you put two chapters in on hell? There is a division when he comes. It's just plain and simple. There are sheep and goats. There's passing into eternal life and passing into eternal destruction. And to ignore that division of humanity at that moment would be naive and hurtful to to the to the church he comes on that day and in that very text of second thessalonians he's going to give relief to those of you who are suffering for his name and he's going to give vengeance for those who are not and the and the second thing to say about that would be that the very nature of heaven and hell is the possession of the glory and the loss of the glory of God. That's what Paul stresses, cut off from the glory and power of God. And of course, people today, they say, good riddance, you know, who, who needs it? I'm quite happy. I say, but, but at that day, when you see the believers passing into the presence of an infinitely glorious, all-satisfying glory, and you passing into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, the loss of that will be the most horrible thing. So I I think while nobody ultimately is scared into heaven, nevertheless, in most of our lives, I would think, fear of hell has played a salutary role to cause us to be vigilant in the pursuit of grace. We know that nobody's in heaven because they're scared of hell. They're in heaven because they love Jesus. Mm. And yet, to be warned that you lose Jesus, you lose all the glory, can awaken a person to say, I don't even love him. Mm. There must be something deeply wrong with me. And then they can sit on a course of, of an awakening to find a love for Christ. Mm. 
And I think I read somewhere that in the New Testament, Jesus is the one who speaks most about hell. I think C.S. Lewis called him the theologian of hell. And um, it's hard to believe in a Jesus and love a Jesus and not also believe in hell and, and want to escape that terrible place and experience. Um, uh, let's move to your third section of your book um, on uh, ethics by eschatology is the way I sort of thought about it in my mind. Uh, let me just get the category, the heading that you did, how then shall we live? Living now in light mm -hmm. of then. I, I thought if this was an academic book, you could go ethics by eschatology with a nice alliteration there. Uh, help us understand how you think eschatology shapes our ethic, shapes how we ought to live. Well, it's remarkable, both in the teaching of Jesus and in Paul, and I think in First Peter and in James, <laughs> in Revelation, um, hope is the root of love for people. If you don't have a solid, unshakable hope that everything, all the horrible things are going to work together for good and ultimately going to work together for your everlasting good, you will be consumed with fear and greed in this world. And fear and greed are the opposite of being interested in other people and wanting to love other people. I mean, my, my um, text that I go to and the one that holds out the most attraction for the way I want to be is Second Corinthians 8, where it says that um, our joy overflowed. Our joy in the grace of God is poured out in verse 1. Joy fills up in verse 2. It overflows through poverty and through affliction onto generosity for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, that dynamic, grace coming down, joy flowing up, love flowing out, and that grace is, you're never going to die. I mean, I used to say to our elders at some you know crit critical point in our church's life, there's some conflict or there's a financial problem, I'd say, guys, the worst that can happen to us is that we all die. <laughs> and that's not a problem. Yeah. I mean, really, really. I mean, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says he, that he took on our nature to deliver those who were held in bondage of fear their whole life long, fear of death their whole life long. Deep down inside, everybody's afraid to die. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Once you consider yourself to be immortal, like, you know, Henry Martin, I'm immortal until my work is done. Yeah. Isn't that an incredible freedom? And, and with that kind of freedom comes love. So the, eth the ethics, I think, flows from once Jesus, by his death, by his resurrection, by his promises, has, has taken away every condemnation, every fear, every greed, and has freed us for everlasting hope, we, we should be the freest of all people to live for others. Hmm. And out of that grows, I think, every dimension of New Testament ethics. Yeah, that's a lovely way of putting it, the freedom we have in Christ in, in light of what we have to look forward to. It, it really eases the conscience and liberates us to live for Christ with great joy. Uh, you have a chapter in here called um, 
go to work, go to church. And I thought, what a, what a brilliant summary of what we ought to do before Jesus comes back. <laughs> Just go to work and go to church, work for six days, and then on the Lord's day, go and worship him. There, there's a simplicity to the way you put that. Uh, do you want to just unpack that, which texts really struck yeah, you in yeah, that regard? Yeah. Well, when I was a pastor for 33 years here at Bethlehem, um, I used to think a lot about what I want to be found doing when the Lord comes. And the texts that helped me the most were, Blessed is that servant who will be found doing what the master said <laughs> when he comes. Yeah. In other words, he's not going to be up on the top of a mountain looking into heaven and, and ready in that sense. He's going to have his nose in his Bible. He's going to be writing sermons. He's going to be visiting the sick. He's going to be counseling the distressed. He's going to be doing the faithful funerals. He's going to be doing his work for the glory of Jesus and when the Lord shows up, I've been doing my work because that's what the text says. So that that's the idea of go to work. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever God has called you to do, secular vocations, Christian vocations, whatever, um, do it with all your might as to the Lord, and he will be pleased that you're doing your duty when he comes. That's a very freeing thing. Um, so that your your hope for his coming is not stitched in between your practical deeds, but just permeates all through them. Go to church. That's Hebrews 10, where it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that just leaps off the page to say, now what should be doing as the day draws near? Meet, (laughs) (laughs) right? Meet with each other. Hmm. Stir each other up to love and good works. You can't do this on your own. Loners are not going to be ready for the second coming. Meet together. And I think that that means both go to church, have a good, healthy church where week by week you're sitting under the preaching of the word, you're singing, you're praying with God's people. It's just so stabilizing and enriching. And then have your your smaller manifestations of togetherness in which you meet and you look into each other's eyes and, and give promises to each other and warnings to each other. That's how we're going to survive when the end comes. Mm. Uh, it recalls to mind a, an illustration I heard years ago about um, if you take a coal in a fire that's glowing, you take it out on its own, just set it aside, it, it loses its heat, loses its color. Um, and that's really like the Christian who thinks, I don't need to go to church, don't need to meet with other believers. I'll just do the lonesome Christian thing and wait for the Lord's appearing. But it's never going to work. They're, they're, they will not love his appearing. They will not long yeah. to marvel at his appearing if they're not actually meeting with God's people yeah. on the Lord's day and, yeah. and midweek and in different settings. And um, I think that's a nice way that you've put it. The meet, we, we need to stir each other up to continue to love his appearing, the meeting becomes the means to the loving. You know, if we're not meeting, we're not going to be loving his appearing. And uh, yeah. I think that comes out really clearly uh, in your book. Um, let, let's talk about Jesus's return for you personally, if it happens in your lifetime or uh, you depart, and as Paul says, and you go to be with Christ. I want to ask you a couple of questions related to that. What are you most looking forward to in respect of seeing Jesus at his coming or 
if you depart and be with Christ before then? What are you most looking forward to about Jesus? I do feel the same as Paul. You know, he, he had uh, three levels of desire, uh, and and dying was not not the most important one, even though he said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, he said, not that we would be unclothed, meaning take off our body like a tent or a garment, but that we would be overclothed and swallowed up by life. I just preached on this at our pastor's conference a few weeks ago and was so moved by that idea of swallowed by life, which relates to death is swallowed up in victory. So it's swallowed by life. It's swallowed by death. And I think that has dimensions in it beyond our imagination right now. Uh, I think even though we can say many true things, um, I'm looking forward to the unimaginable greatness of it. But uh, I, I, in my best moments, I am moved, I suppose, by Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live by faith, I live by faith. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's one of the few places where Paul gets really personal. Mm -hmm. He loved me and gave himself. And at my best moments, that love for me is so sweet and so exquisite in its personal power that I would like to say thank you face to face and get down low and just soak in the immediacy of mm. his love for me. Mm. I mean, that, I, I think Jesus, you know, I grew up in a church where they would say things like, if you were the only person, he would have died for you. Well, that that gets at what Paul was saying there. He loved me. And I'm, I'm, I believe, as, as you do too, in the particular redemption of the cross that he had us in view. This is not a general net cast over the whole world. Mm. That love exists, but this love is very personal, mm. very particular, and very powerful. And so I would like to bask in it. Uh, here's, here's one other thing I would say. Um, I am so uh, often um, fearful until I solve the problem afresh that my emotions as they presently exist, will simply not be adequate to love him as I ought, cherish him, treasure him, delight in him as I ought. You know, if, if I meet him just like I am now, with all my limitations, all my sin, all my seeing through a glass darkly now, my response is going to be pathetic. And that scares me. I don't want a pathetic response in his presence. And, and the encouraging thing is, when you see him, you'll be changed. You'll be like him, for you'll see him as he is. Or um, what's the other text I was thinking of? Um, well, oh yeah, John John seventeen twenty six, where it says, uh, I, I've Father, Jesus is praying to the Father, I have... You revealed your name to them so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them, which means I think I'm going to be able to love Jesus at that 
moment with the love of the Father for Jesus. Wow. I mean, the the divine yeah. Trinitarian, intra-Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son that has existed forever and ever, ever, will, in whatever measure a finite being can appropriate it, will be imparted to me by the Holy Spirit such that I will not be left to myself in the affections I feel for Jesus. So we'll see him as he is, and we'll be given new eyes, new affections, new capacities to enjoy him as he deserves. That moves me very deeply. I, I'm eager for that day. I do think he could come in my lifetime. I'm 77, and so they'd have to read the book to see how I think about the timing yeah. of all things. But but um, I don't think I'm so old that it can't happen. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's very moving to. Even though I do think I do think there are things that should happen first. I, mean, I could be mistaken, but I think second Thessalonians talks about a man of lawlessness, talks about an apostasy, but those things could develop. Oh my goodness, they could go very fast. Mm. It's very moving hearing. That's what you're looking forward to. I was thinking of what Luther, Martin Luther, said on Galatians two twenty, the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He said. Uh, the sweetness of the gospel is in the personal pronouns. Who loved me and gave himself for me. And then I was thinking of, as you were speaking there, when he was on the cross, we were on his mind. That there not there a song that the Gathers sing? I don't know if they wrote it. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And and I, th- I, don't I think that really gets at Galatians 2.20, doesn't it? That, that we really were yeah. on the mind of Christ as he was dying on the cross. Um, Mm. Let me ask Mm. you, let's broaden out. So you see Jesus, you see him in all his glory, you love him, uh, and you thank him for dying for you. And then he introduces you to the saints. Uh, Are there particular saints you want to talk to? Do you want to say to Paul, uh, are you an amillennialist or a (laughs) Uh, pre-trib? Is there a a New Testament writer, Old Testament writer you want to talk to and say, hey, or what did you mean by this verse? Like, what do you think I got it right? Is there somebody like that among the biblical inspired authors you want to talk to? I I, I think those, those thoughts of getting clarity about difficult texts will probably be a little later. <laughs> I, I I can't help but think that the people that I would like to meet are mainly going to be people I want to thank. I'm going to thank Jonathan Edwards. I'm going to thank him. I'm going to scold him maybe a little bit for a few things, as he will me. <laughs> <laughs> but but mainly, uh, I'm going to I'm going to thank. Dan Fuller, again, although my teacher Dan Fuller is still alive at 96, and I I love him very much. He, he helped me. I'm going to thank George Ladd. I'm going to thank my dad, thank my mom. I'm going to thank the Apostle Paul. I wrote a book on why I love the Apostle Paul. I'm going to tell him face to face, I love you. I love you. You were, for me, the most important writer in the New Testament, and I thank you for writing what you did and for suffering what you suffered. So I, th- when I think about meeting the people, it, it isn't first get clarity on some difficult things that they wrote, which will come. I don't know how the Lord will uh, cause that to be get clarified in our mind, whether we'll know it at a flash or, or have to do some investigation. I'm not sure. It just one other thing comes to my mind. I, I, in this talk I gave at the pastor's conference, um, 
I referred to Richard Baxter, who, of course, meditated on the saints' everlasting rest more than anybody, probably. And he lists in that book, at one point, 29 people <laughs> in church history that he'd like to meet. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know I that. Didn't even know, I didn't know about six of them. Right? But huh. the rest I knew. And I thought, he, he, he gave that much serious consideration to the reality of knowing people. And I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I don't think it's sentimentalism to say that we will know each other. Um, Elijah and Moses were known. They were recognized on the Mount mm -hmm. of Transfiguration. Jesus was eventually recognized after the resurrection. I don't think it's a bad song to say we will know him by the nail prints in his hand. I, I think those are, he's going to have a glorified body, and yet the memory of his crucifixion will be clear. It will be the basis of our songs forever and ever. And so the we, we, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, Jesus said in Matthew 13, and yet we won't be so blindingly bright and different that we can't recognize each other. Uh, as we look forward to that second coming in the meantime, are there particular hymns you like to sing in church that really capture for you the glory of the second coming and our longing for it? Are there hymns that are some of your favorite that relate to that Perusia moment? Oh, I should have given some thought to that one before. When, when I did this funeral for my mother-in-law day before yesterday, I was at, at the graveside with my hand on the coffin talking about Christ's purchase of her body from 2 Corinthians 6 and how she will glorify God with her body forever, not just here. And when I was done, I just broke into, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun. Now, that comes straight from Matthew 13, 43. Bright, shining as the sun. We have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So the, the last verse of Amazing Grace gets right at the the everlasting hope and the the brightness of our new resurrection bodies, but I, I I've been I've been I, I try to sing a hymn every day I, I I work my way through two hymnals I keep a, a list of hymns in my Evernote file so I can have them with me if I want to sing somewhere, but recently the older I get and the fact that I wrote this book did cause me to take note of how many solid historic hymns have a verse or their way toward um, making it with Christ's help to the everlasting rest. Mm. Yeah, uh, when peace like a river attendeth my soul. Uh, as I was reading your book, I thought, you know, I, I want to sing in light of this. And some hymns that came to my mind were um, Charles Wesley's Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending, uh, one of my favorite hymns of Wesley. Mm. Um, great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. Not not as well known a hymn, but still a, a lovely mm -hmm. hymn. But also has the has some verses about hell and the anguish mm -hmm. that people are going to face, mm -hmm. which we don't often sing these days in church, and yet mm -hmm. I think we should. Mm -hmm. And then my favorite among all the sort of second coming ones um, is the sands of time are sinking. Um, in Emmanuel's land, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land, it's based on mm -hmm. Samuel mm -hmm. Rutherford's, uh, mm -hmm. I think, poem. 
and uh, yeah. one of the or, or abide with me. Yes. Yeah. The even yes. Time. Yes. Yeah. One of the verses in the sands of time are sinking. I think captures some of what you're doing in the book. Uh, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but at the King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. That's Isn't great. that beautiful? That's beautiful. And uh, I think that yeah, really captures what you're doing in this book. Yeah, it, it, it gets at something that would be good to just note briefly is one of the problems that we run into in our hearts resting in the appearing is that we 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 are all so prone to love the gifts more than the giver mm. and the gifts are to be loved i mean forgiveness is to be loved mm -hmm. right not getting sick anymore is to be loved to be done with tears and depression is to be loved but it's so easy to to shift our focus off of the face of the lamb onto the gifts of the lamb and and so a hymn like that's really Valuable. Well, I'm going to ask you if you would close this podcast by reading the hymn that you've written at the end of the book, a beautiful hymn that you've penned for the purpose of this book. And I'm going to ask you if you would uh, please read that for us called, Oh, Come, Lord Jesus, Come, a hymn to Christ by John Piper. Great crucified and risen Christ, ascended, reigning Lord of all. Dear sovereign lamb, once sacrificed before whom countless angels fall, have mercy, Savior, on our eyes, so prone to count the world a prize and grant that your appearing nigh would quicken love and wake the cry, O come, Lord Jesus, come. Outshining then ten thousandfold the greatest spectacle on earth, your glory grant us to behold and feel its beauty, greatness, worth, with angel armies radiant in might, attending your descent, that we before the final shout would see and from the heart cry out, O come, Lord Jesus, come. Let not your servants shrink in fear from that great day of flaming fire when those who choose not to revere your name will have what they desire, but never dreamed would be a place so dreadful, banished from your face, Grant us, O Christ, from judgment freed, that we might ever fearless plead. O come, Lord Jesus Christ. O haste the day when we will hear you say, Well done, dear child, though we are bent and flawed, the day severe when all the stubble burned away, we see your smile, the all-transforming face, and then the everlasting grace, the moment we as fallen men will never fall or sin again. O come, Lord Jesus Christ. O come, Lord Jesus, come. Sound forth, O God, your trumpet soon. Unleash, O Christ, your last command. Archangel, speak and tell the moon and sun to veil their face, the land, and sea to yield to Christ his wife, the church triumphant raised to life, yes, in the twinkling of an eye with bodies that will never die. O come, Lord Jesus, come. We dare, O Christ, to hope, though we can scarcely fathom it, 
that she for whom you died will gratefully assume her privileged seat and be your banquet's best beloved while you and clothe your majesty anew and holding over all full sway become our servant on that day. O oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Though now, O oh Christ, as in a glass we dimly see, yet face to face is our desire. And yes, alas, our love is weak, but we embrace the blessed hope that we will shine with borrowed brightness all divine, because we will on that great day be satisfied and no more say, O oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Dr. Piper, it's been a privilege uh, to speak to you uh, on this wonderful book, Come Lord Jesus. Uh, the bookstore is doing a giveaway. Uh, if you go to wtsbooks.com, uh, you can find out more about the giveaway uh, for this episode on the afterward. Dr. Piper, we hope you keep writing. We hope the Lord gives you many more years of service in his kingdom. You have been a great a servant in the church and have impacted many people. You impacted me in South Africa in 1996, where I gazed down on a pastor's table in his study. And I said, what's that book with that orange, that ugly orange cover? And uh, he said, that is one of the best books I've ever read on preaching. I said, who's it by? He said, it's by a, a Baptist pastor called John Piper. Never heard of you. He said, do you want to borrow it? I said, yes, I would love to. And I, I went home and I read that book cover to cover and it completely blew my mind. And I thought, I want to preach. I want to preach. So you, you have been a part of my journey of uh, calling me uh, into ministry, God calling me into ministry. So thank you. And I know that's been the case for many, many other people. So uh, we wish you and Noel every blessing in your years ahead. And uh, thank you very much for coming on The Afterward. Thank you, Johnny. It's, it's wonderful to talk with you.